want to thank you for being here this morning. We are uh, glad that you're here and hope that you had a wonderful time with some family uh, Thanksgiving weekend and have enjoyed this. And uh, for most of us, it's looking at going back to work tomorrow and things kind of returning to normal. But uh, have enjoyed some time off myself and um, looking forward to hopefully what will be an interesting lesson to you this morning. Um, this kind of started, and I guess many of you know, some years ago, um, I was going through the book of Hebrews and I realized that I didn't un understandest thou what thou readest. I really didn't. And so it, as you go through Hebrews, you, you realize that if you don't go back and understand the old law and you don't understand about the tabernacle, you, you're going to miss a lot of that. And so uh, in an effort to try to understand Hebrews, I went back and I looked at, the, at uh, those passages there in Exodus that tell you about the tabernacle that on the surface are pretty dry reading. But when you begin to, to see the magic of God is how he overlaid that, that old plan with the plan of Christ and salvation through him, you begin to really have a great appreciation for that kind of thing. And so it, I kind of took a similar, although not as in-depth approach, certainly, uh, to looking at weddings, because weddings are something that we, we kind of think we have an idea about, because most of us have attended one. Many of us were participants in, in one. We're, many in this audience are married. Uh, and, and so we have some understanding of it, but... Uh, if you understand weddings the way they were in the time of Christ, I think it can shed some light on some scriptures and help us glean some things from that that maybe we don't get trying to look through it through the lens of a modern wedding. Um, so, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus did quite a bit of teaching about weddings, and, and the Apostle Paul did as well. And so hopefully this will help us to understand it. And so we think about a modern wedding and what that would entail. And um, I'll tell you, they did not have a formal ceremony like what we have. I and mean, you think about the point at which a couple is acknowledged in the sight of God as being wed. And that would be probably when they complete their vows here. That's what we think of as the completion of the wedding ceremony. And God would recognize that wedding as these, this, this couple is now, they're married. Uh, and then, of course, the, perhaps the next day or a few days later when those papers were returned to the courthouse, then the city or the state uh, would then do the same and recognize that. But that's really not exactly uh, the way weddings went in the time of Jesus. And in fact, there's one central thing that, that we should definitely understand. And first of all, you know, in today's culture, the bride is really the central figure in the wedding. If you think about it, the, the, the groom is at the front, everybody else comes in first, and then we all stand, and here comes the bride. And the bride is ushered in by her father in most cases. And so that's, that's a customary wedding ceremony today because the bride was the central, is, is the central focus of that. But in Jesus' time, that was not the case. The groom was the central figure of that, and, and I think we'll see that as we begin to look at it. Uh, there were really three stages to the wedding, contract, consummation, and then finally celebration, and they were in that order. But an interesting thing is that when you look at the contract, 
it was called a ketubah, and it was a legally binding, binding contract that was signed by the bride's father. In most cases, in all, nearly every case that I could read, with the bride's permission. So it wasn't, there may be, it certainly were some exceptions, but in, in most cases, the bride consented to this wedding. Now, it may have been a wedding that was, um, that was set up by the parents from the time the kids were born. You, you, you've heard of those kind of things that they were, uh, and then, then other times they, they came on later in life and they make the decision. But, but um, in either case, it was a legally binding contract. And the interesting thing is that this is the point at which they were actually married. When you sign that contract, you're married right then. There's no ceremony that's going to that's going to invoke that. That's that's the way by law in order to have that undone. Then you would have to have a, a bill of divorcement to get out of that contract. But it was signed by the father's bride. Uh, it included a dowry which was paid by the groom uh, to the father's bride. Um, in essence, you can think of that as it was a it was called the bride price. It was usually, again, this is in Jesus' day, about 50 shekels of silver. And it also included a cash penalty in case there was a divorce without cause. So that if the man just decided to leave the woman, now here she was. She was, a, this is the virgin that was married. And, and then the, the man decides to leave her. Well, now that puts her in a position where it's, She's not going to be as easily married a second time in that culture, especially. And so, um, so there was a price for that that was paid by the groom. And it compensated the bride's uh, family for the loss of an asset. I mean, that person was a worker in that family. They did things for that family. And now here they're going to leave that family and they're going to be part of the groom's family and they're going to actually serve them not in the sense of being a slave but they're going to they're going to be a servant in that family and so uh, again this whole thing of a dowry dates way back to Genesis 34 Um, a guy named Shechem said to Jacob uh, let let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say, but give me the young woman as a wife. And so this was a long-standing tradition with the Jews, and it continued right into the days of Christ. And again, as we stated, the signing of the ketubah started the marriage. Remember when Jesus came, uh, it says now, and this is in Matthew chapter 1, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed, in that term, we think of betrothed as being engaged. That seems, that's what I always thought it was, is equal to engagement. But in truth, it wasn't. It was, it was more than that. They were more than engaged. So Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, so the came, coming together would have been the consummation of that, of that marriage. She was found with child. Well, now what's Joseph think? Initially, he thinks, my bride's been defiled. So what did he say? He said that Joseph, being a just man, 
He didn't want to make an example of her. He didn't want to embarrass her. He was going to put her away privately. So he was going to put her away as his bride because she had, she had broken the contract. See, because when, when you went into that contract, there was an a, a, um, expectation of, pr- of purity on the part of the bride. And that, and that expectation was also that the father would ensure that that would be the case. So the expectation was on the young lady, but it was, the expectation was also on the father that, she, that he would do what he was supposed to do to keep her pure because he was going to have to present her. And then the groom returns. And, and this was an interesting thing that I read that at some time when, when the bride and the groom were talking, that the groom would say, I'm going to leave now, and I'm going to go make a place for you back in my home. Where I am, you can be also. And how much that echoes the exact words of Jesus when he says in John chapter 14, He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So again, there's this analogy or this this type comparing the, the, the wedding to the relationship that we have with Christ. This passage I thought was especially interesting of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you, contracted, ketubeth, uh, to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people like you and I and saying that he's, in essence, he's their spiritual father. He's the one that signed the contract with God. He's talking about baptized. He's talking about baptism or taught them the gospel, led them to Christ. And he says that just like in that marriage, I have betrothed you to one husband, and that's Christ. And he goes on and he says that he says he was concerned for them. Uh, lest their minds be corrupted from the simplicity that, that is in Jesus Christ. So that was his concern because he wanted to be able to fulfill his part of the contract to present them as a bride, as a virgin bride that was, that was pure, that was free from sin. Now, does he mean they weren't going to sin at all? Of course not but that they were going to live a life that was dedicated to Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we were bought with a price. You know, in studying this, I've always looked at that passage, and I've never really connected it with the whole idea of a wedding. But after studying this, I think it very much is. He says you're bought with, at a price, and that price... Uh, and that price was the sacrifice of Jesus. And he says, and because of that, you're supposed to live a pure life. Just like that virgin that, that when the father signed the contract, and by the way, there was usually about a period of a year that they were betrothed. So it wasn't like, let's go 
put together a room in, in two weeks and, and I'll be back to get you. Sometimes there was a, it was approximately a year that this couple was married, legally married, but not living together. And so that's what, and so what Paul's saying here is that you're bought with a price. And that price was the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, because of that, live a pure life. Live a life dedicated to the one that's going to come again and claim you. That's what he's saying here. Did you know that God divorced Israel? Have you ever heard of that? Well, if you look in Jeremiah chapter 3, we see this verse. You know, God was not happy with Israel. Remember lots of occasions where he would do things for them, he would have them prosper, and they would turn their back from him. They would, they would go another direction. And, 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 they, and God became displeased with Israel in many, many occasions. And so we see this verse in, in Jeremiah chapter 3. It says, Then I saw that for all the causes for which uh, backsliding Israel had committed adultery. Is he talking about physical adultery? No, he's talking about spiritual adultery. That they had other gods. That they were following after other gods. That, that there were things in their life that were more important than, than serving God. And because of that, this, this spiritual adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorcement. And he says, yet her treacherous sister Judah. Remember that, that Israel, the ten tribes, went to the north. And they were scattered about by the Assyrians. But Judah, the tribe of Judah, and Benjamin stayed to the south. And he says, and, and often Judah and Benjamin were referred to as just Judah because Judah was the larger of the two by far. Judah did not fear and went and played the harlot also. Again, is he talking about a, a physical harlot? No, he's talking about spiritual. And so... Paul was concerned that just like Christ, just like God divorced Israel, that he could divorce many in his church, many in his kingdom, even though they were baptized. And so he warns them. And, and then the consummation, of course, and this was uh, uh, an interesting thing also. Rather than you think about in today's world, you have... The, the couple is married, they have a formal ceremony, and they leave and they go on a honeymoon. Well, the consummation happened at the, at the bride's house. So when everything was prepared, approximately a year had gone by, the father would, would tell, would send a message to the groom that his bride was ready. He would certify that she was pure, that come and take your bride. But they weren't on atomic time. So they didn't necessarily... And the other thing is, in that culture, time was not as... Um, they weren't as married to their, to their uh, time schedules as we are in today's culture. And so it might be a, a period of days or perhaps even a week before the groom could get all of his court together and, and, and bring them to the house of the bride. But anyway, after, after the bride, all the commitments were fulfilled, the bride would invite the groom to return. 
The exact time where it was determined by the parable or, or by, by the groom, we'll see that in the parable of ten virgins that we'll look at here in a minute. Um, and then consummation of the marriage happened right there at the bride's house, and there was a, a, a wedding party that would be in another room, and once they completed the consummation, then they would go back to the, uh, to the groom's house for the celebration. John the Baptist says this, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. When the consummation was complete, the, you would, the first things you would hear would be the bridegroom announcing that they were coming out. And when they came out, then they would join the party and they would go back to the home of the groom for the celebration. And so John the Baptist here is saying that he's not, he's not the bride. He, or he's not the bridegroom. But rather, he's excited for the one that is, and that is Jesus. There were usually ten male witnesses that announced the arrival of the groom when, when he showed up to the bride's house. And the father was quite proud to present his daughter in purity. And if that wasn't the case, there were some real problems. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, we read these verses. So, in, and let me just give you the, the backstory to this. So, if, if the groom accused the bride of, of infidelity before they were before the consummation then then th this clause was invoked it says but if the thing is true in other words the charge against her and evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil thing from among you. Now, again, we think about this in terms of physical. But think about this in terms of spiritual. The underlying message this morning is simply that. That we have to be pure. That God expects us to live a life that's dedicated to Him. And that if we don't, we're in this same situation of the woman who went under contract, who, who presented herself as being a virgin, and the father did the same, and yet is found to be a liar. And we see this pretty much the same language there when we, when we look at Jeremiah chapter 3. So let's look at the, the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins. And it says, the kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins. Okay. So there's, there's some... Because Jesus is comparing the kingdom to the church, or he's comparing the kingdom to the marriage, there's more than one wife here, I believe. Because all of us are that, are that spouse. And so there's ten now, he makes the point of using ten because five are wise and five are foolish. They all took out lamps. So you can see 
there's word come out that the groom is coming. And so the wedding party goes out to meet him. And they go out, and this was fairly customary, to go out and meet the groom on his path and light his way to come to the bride's house. But five were wise, and they carried their lamps with them with plenty of oil. And five were foolish. They carried their lamps, but they didn't have enough oil. And so when it came to the time to trim the lamps, they didn't have enough, enough oil. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, all they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all of those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. I believe that what this is saying is that as Christians, we're supposed to light the world. And the lamp was the source of that light. And what provides the source of the light to the lamp is the oil. What is that symbolic of? That's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what lights the lamp. And so these, these five that were unwise had just gotten lazy. They had just, uh, maybe they'd been about their business just living life and going about the, their, their daily business. But they were, they were not attending to spiritual things. And so when the bridegroom came, they weren't ready. And the five that were wise didn't have enough to take care of them because that's just, they didn't. And they went to buy, and the bridegroom came, and those that were ready went in with him to the wedding And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Surely I say unto you that I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for ye neither know the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So this whole analogy is teaching that if we don't don't stay ready, then we're going to be just like these bride, these... uh, these virgins that were awaiting on their groom, but when he, when he finally came, they weren't ready. Because the truth is, is we don't know the hour that he comes. And the bride here didn't know the hour that the groom was to come. And so after the, the consummation was the celebration, they returned to the groom's house for a big feast. Um, this passage in Luke chapter 5, Then they said to him, him being Jesus, why do, your, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees? But yours eat and drink. And so the, they were trying to trip him, trip him up, tempt him. And he said to them, can you, make friends of the, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's talking about himself. He says, this is not the time for them to fast. He says, the bridegroom is with them. This is a point of celebration. But there's going to be a time when the bridegroom will be taken away. And they'll fast in those days. 
<laughs> There's some tough days coming for those that, would, that were following Jesus, but it wasn't in this moment. The feast lasted several days. The bride and groom remained with them. Again, there wasn't a honeymoon like traditionally we think of today. But um, they stayed and they feasted together. Revelation 19, talking about the end time. And it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, there's no way that you and I can cleanse ourselves from our sins. We've committed sin that only Jesus can cleanse, every one of us. And yet, there's some righteous acts that are required of those that, that will follow Jesus. There's an expectation that we'll do our best to try to serve Him, remain pure, and remain committed to Him, just like, just like the bride was expected to remain pure in awaiting for the groom. Remember the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, just to real quickly tell the story, the, um, the invitations went out to those that uh, were bidden, and none of them came. And there were three different attempts, and, and none of them came. And they actually killed the messengers. And so finally the king... He sent out into the highways and byways, and he said, I've got a wedding, and, and, and my son comes with his bride, and, and I'm going to fill the house. And so he just sent out, and just get whoever you can get. And so they came in, and we remember the story that there was, there was one that came in and didn't have on proper wedding attire. And what, was ha what happened to him? Well, as the picture shows, he was bound and cast out. Again, it's teaching that same message that you may be invited to the feast, but yet if you don't come in a state that's proper, is pure, is committed to serving the Lord, then you're going to be in no better shape than this guest. You're going to be in no better shape than the five uh, uh, bridesmaids that were waiting for the groom and so forth. This verse in, in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives just, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sa sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the words. Now, I want you to notice here, and I never really thought of it in this context, but in the example of the wedding, it was the father that was responsible for presenting his bride to the groom in a pure state. That was his responsibility. That's what he was, he was supposed to do. But look who, cleansed, look who cleansed the bride here. Jesus did. See, we couldn't do it on our own. He had to do it. And he goes on to say that he might present it to himself. You think about the proud father that as the groom came up, that he would, present his, the, the, he would present the bride as one that was pure, and he would be proud to do so. Jesus has to present it to himself because he's the one 
that makes us pure. It's our responsibility, though, as Christians to try to live in that same way. And we've seen example after example this morning of those that didn't fell by the wayside. So just to try to understand the, the, the betrothed or the betrothal or however you say that, it's kind of symbolic of baptism. It's when, when, when you make that commitment to Jesus Christ and you're baptized into him, you're not living with him, but you're committed to him. And you know that he goes to prepare a place for you and he will come again. And finally, at Jesus' second coming, that, that marriage will be consummated for those that are faithful, for those that remain pure and ready for Him. And see, that be the case whether we pass away and whether Jesus is, comes while we're still alive or whether we're in the grave. It really doesn't matter. It's a matter of us uh, remaining pure and ready for His coming. And all of those passages that we talked about really taught that. And finally, the celebration, that feast that went on for as much as a week, that's, that's, that, that's the prize. That's what we get in eternal life. So this morning, I hope that, um, hope that the study's been something that's been interesting to you. Uh, perhaps we'll help you as you look at Scripture on your own. You'll be able to glean uh, facts and, and pull things out of Scripture that you didn't see before because you understand the context of the way that their weddings worked. Uh, this morning, we're going to offer a song of invitation if the church can help you in any way. If you feel like, you know, you've, you've been taught and you're ready to go into that contract. You, you want that ketubah with Christ that will assure you of eternal life. Or if you're one that needs the prayers of the church because you recognize that you haven't done your part in keeping yourself pure. And if we can help you in any way, we would ask you to come as we stand and sing the selected song.